Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a cultivating conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We're going to talk about marijuana cultivation. While I deal with the daily health tolls of marijuana poisonings, I do appreciate and marvel at the agricultural innovations and production of cannabis products. The growth medium can be soil, hydroponics, or aeroponics. There are details in soil pH, lighting, temperature, water, humidity, atmosphere, and nutrients. And there are critical stages of germination, imbibition, seedlings, vegetative, pre-flowering, flowering, and eventually cultivation. Attention to these fine details has changed and strengthened the marijuana plant. The plant has also been genetically modified. Marijuana in the 1970s was 3% THC, and today's plant is more potent, 17 to 30% THC. I attended a lecture where a law enforcement officer was showing off a picture of himself standing next to a marijuana plant in the early days of his drug enforcement career. He was showing off his prize capture, standing in front of a respectable-sized bush, reaching up to his waist. I'm sure it was pretty impressive in those days. But on the next slide, he showed a picture of himself years later, standing next to a much fatter, much taller marijuana plant reaching over his head. It made the early days plant look like a pathetic weed. According to MG, Cannabis Industry News, the world's largest commercial cannabis cultivation facility is in New Mexico. Ultra Health shows off a 9.2 million square foot facility about the size of 52 Walmarts. While cultivators and cannabis businesses are pushing for growth in plants and profits, the United Nations has issued a very different warning. The United Nations International Narcotics Control Board cited data of the negative health effects and psychotic disorders. The board stated that in all jurisdictions where cannabis has been legalized, data shows that cannabis-related health problems have increased. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Thank you, Dr. Lev, so much for your presentation and sharing your slides. My name is Elisa Crivetti. I'm a licensed psychologist in California, and I work with adolescents at a school-based wellness center and also in private practice. My question is, what is the difference between cannabis used for research and cannabis used in dispensaries? Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Alyssa, for your question. And you reached out to me for a copy of my slides that I did for a presentation on the fourth annual cannabis conference at Stanford. And I was happy to share that with you. And you mentioned that you work with adolescents and inmates who have substance disorder and yet drank the Kool-Aid that cannabis can do no wrong. And I wish you great success in treating your patients and educating other psychologists on the science and emergency department experience with cannabis. And to answer your question, I have the world's expert on growing cannabis for research, the one and only Dr. Mahmoud El Soli. For 50 years, the National Institute of Drug Abuse allowed only one farm at the University of Mississippi to grow marijuana for research. And the one guy behind that one farm is Dr. Mahmoud El Soli. He is America's number one expert in growing pot for medical research. To learn more about Dr. El Soli, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Mahmoud El Soli, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be. You don't know how long I've been waiting to have a conversation with you, maybe over five years, because when I was at ONDCP, I put in a proposal to come visit you in Mississippi, along with um, Dr. Michael Calla. Uh, may he rest in peace. He's one of the smartest epidemiologists um, that the White House ever had. And yes. and I really wanted to come visit you and, and see what you're doing. And I, that got denied. And then I've been bugging the people from the um, National Marijuana Initiative to introduce us. And finally, finally, I get to meet you. So I'm so excited. Well, well, very good. It's good. Glad to be with you. I worked with Mike, uh, bless his soul now, for for so many years. And I think he, he did come and visit one time, but I did visit the ONDCP maybe two or three times. So we've had a long working relationship. And finally, he, you know, he was very much interested in the work that we did on the potency monitoring program and looking at and getting copies of our database and everything. And he was trying to more or less marry the data that we have in our database with that that the DEA has on the confiscated materials. And the two databases didn't really have the exact same information, but you put the two together and you have complete set of information on every seizure that is made by the DA. So he, he was very instrumental in putting that together. Yes, he's pretty amazing. But you are, you know, probably the world's greatest marijuana grower for research. So how did that happen? How did you get to that? Well, it's a, you want the long story or the short story? Ah, the good story, the good story. <laughs> Let me give you the good story. This really started back in 1968. We had the the, uh, the national, uh, I mean, the, uh, the Research Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences here at the University of Mississippi had a director that was hired in 1968. His name was Coy Waller. He's also deceased now, bless his soul. Coy Waller was serving on the FDA advisory board for, you know, control substances, whatever. And, and he, he was sitting in a, in a meeting that where marijuana was discussed and the structure of Delta 90C was not discovered till 1964. So 1968 was very close to the discovery of the THC and the chemical structure and so on. And therefore, once that happened, there was a lot of interest in doing some research with cannabis and cannabinoids and marijuana and all that kind of stuff. So the FDA 
decided they really needed to have some standardized material, some material for research. It needed to be initiated for NIH at that time. Uh, it decided they really needed some material to be used in uh, studying the effects, plus or minus, of the cannabis. And they needed some plant material. And so, uh, and the reason they decided to do that is because initially, they figured they can do some research with confiscated material. They go to DA or to whoever and get some of the seized material, use it for research. And the very first batch that they used to make an extract ended up to be contaminated with tongue oil. And therefore, it was very clear and very obvious that you can't really just get something confiscated. You don't know what the origin is. You don't know how it was planted. You don't know how it was harvested, processed, and so on, and use that for research that you can reproduce every year from one investigator to another. So they decided they needed some supply. Coy Waller was on the committee at that time, and he said, well, we have, we in Mississippi, we have very good weather, and I think we can grow it there, and we have land and all of that. And so they gave him a contract back in 1968. 1971, uh, he hired someone, his name was Carlton Turner. You might remember the name because he was the drug abuse advisor for Reagan during the Reagan administration. He worked with Nancy Reagan for many years, and people say, well, Carlton is the one that uh, uh, taught uh, Nancy how to, you know, to, to, to do this. And, uh, and anyways, he, Carlton Turner, became the director in 1971. And in 1980, he became the drug advisor for Reagan in 1980. Well, Carlton Turner took over 1971. The first farm was done in Southern Mississippi, but then very quickly realized that's too far from the main campus here in Oxford to keep it in there. So we, not we, I wasn't here at that time, but uh, they decided to create a marijuana field here in Oxford at the, at the uh, grounds of the University of Mississippi. So that got started in 1968 and then 71, Carlton Turner took over and became a, an annual contract with the predecessor of NIDA, which was, I think, was in IMH. But then NIDA was created a few years later and continued uh, the same program. So the, the main uh, purpose of the program was to grow, harvest, process, and prepare marijuana or cannabis plant material, standardized plant material for research. And so that has been going on for that many years. The contract is a competitively bid contract every three years, it used to be. And then the last few cycles, they change it to every five years because it's a lot of work and a lot of effort to renew the contract and open up for bids for everybody to apply and all of this. So they made it every five years. So just uh, this past March, March 2023, was the last day, the last uh, uh, cycle that we have had, which was originally five years, but then they kept extending it for another year, another year, another year. So the last cycle actually ended up to be eight years, but the extension I think was because of the uncertainty about the other growers 
the DA has allowed to put a, 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 a request for registration to provide research, to provide marijuana plant material for research. And so they didn't know how this is gonna go and all of that. So they extended, extended, extended until they know, okay, now we have some growers, they're out there, they can bid on the contract. So they put it out for bids and it was just awarded uh, in April of this year. So now we still have the, the current uh, uh, contract for five years uh, to go. We are in the first year of this current cycle. But so, how did how did you get into this? I mean, you have a, a PhD, and did you were you always a farmer, or what interested you, and how did you come to this subject? Well, I was I came to the United States as a graduate student in 1972. I went to the University of Pittsburgh uh, and did my PhD there. In my last year in graduate school, when I and I actually. I'm going to brag a little bit here, so bear with me. Uh, I'm probably one of the fastest PhD uh, candidates in the history of, I think, the University of Pittsburgh, but also University of Mississippi for that matter, because I came in 1972. In September 1975, in August, I moved to Mississippi as a postdoc. So three years I did my PhD and really did. I could have finished a lot earlier than that because I did tremendous amount of work in the in the time that I was at the University of Pittsburgh, but minimum requirements were coursework that you had to finish, and I couldn't take, get my PhD without completing all the required courses. So I had to say to finish the courses, not that I didn't finish my research. As a matter of fact, in my PhD, I did three projects because I finished the first one that was supposed to qualify me to finish my PhD, but... Uh, because I, I still had to be there. They gave me another one. I finished that, they gave me another one. So I had three projects that I did in my graduate school. But anyways, so I did, a, I think I did a good job. And my advisor there contacted Carlton Turner, who was the director here in 1975, and told him, I have a very good graduate student. Can you, do you have a place for him? He said, yes. So I moved in Mississippi in 1975 and started working with Carlton Turner on marijuana in 1975, 1976, in that time frame. So, and I really got to uh, appreciate the plant and the, 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 uh, the potential for that plant and, and the difficulty in dealing with the cannabinoids and getting them isolated and so on. So that kind of tweaked my interest. And so I, I continued, I stayed here. And I moved from a postdoctorate to a research associate in 1976. And 19, by, by, by 1980, I think 82 or 83, something like that, I became a full professor at the University of Mississippi. Again, one of the fastest uh, promoted faculty members in the history of the, of the school here. So I, I think I've, I've done pretty well here. And people ask me, Dr. Sali, why, why you stay in Mississippi? Why you can be anywhere you want to be? I said, why not Mississippi? I'm, I love <laughs> it here. I'm comfortable here. I do all I want to do here. So why not Mississippi? And why I, not? I, I travel all over the place. So that's how I got in here, basically by necessity. But, uh, but then uh, uh, I, I like it here and I continue to be here. In the meantime, in 1985, 
I opened a private lab here in Oxford, Mississippi, that really is a is an analytical laboratory that deals with drugs of abuse, both testing and product development. And I do a lot of collaboration with the university. And so it worked out really well for me. So I'm, I'm very happy here and I'm happy to be with you. I am too. So you're, you're really, like you said, you know, uh, amazing career and you're the one of the top cited authors of forensic science in the world. Is all your research on marijuana or other drugs too? No, I have a, I have a research on other drugs. I've actually developed a lot of different things for different uh, indications. I, I have a product right now on the in phase two clinical trials for dealing with uh, the contact dermatitis caused by poison ivy. So uh, it, it is in phase two clinical trial, and I hope that it will make it. Interesting. Uh, uh, treatment for that? or it's a, it's a prophylactic treatment for poison ivy. So it's like a, a, like a with the lack of a better term, like a, 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 a what do you call it, uh, when you take something so you don't get the disease, like yeah. a, Prevention. A, a immunization, yeah. Oh, immunization. Interesting. You immunize people to poison ivy. But the immunization is usually done before you get exposure, your first exposure to the agent. But this one is prophylactic treatment. So you take it before the season, you take it before you get exposed to the poison ivy, and it will prevent you from breaking out when you get there. If you are sensitive already, if you're not sensitive, it will produce tolerance, meaning that you will not, if you get exposed the first time, then you will not get sensitized to the to the urethral, which is the active ingredient in poison oil. Interesting. Yeah. So everything related to plants sounds like your expertise. By the yeah, way, I've heard yeah. of people getting dermatitis and allergies to marijuana also. Well, it, it, it is possible, but uh, you know, some of the terpenes in the in the in the plant material, some people are sensitive to the terpenes. Just like, you know, some people are sensitive to perfumes. You put perfume and they break out or something. It's the same thing. The sensitivity that the people have for cannabis is probably because of the terpenes, not, not because of cannabinoids. Interesting. So um, there are, you have a facility that I wished I got to tour. Maybe one day I, I did. You have a, a farm that grows marijuana. Can you give us a, a verbal tour of the facility, eh? um, you know, they say it's like a farm, but marijuana is different. Like if you, if I toured a marijuana grow in California, it'd be surrounded by machine guns and, and security. Like the tomato plants don't have that. Um, what about your? What about your facility? Give us a. Our, facility, our outdoor growing facility is a twelve-acre field that has a ten-foot uh, cyclone uh, fence around it. Actually, it has a double fence, one fence that actually surrounds the garden. And then there is like maybe six or eight feet and then another fence. So it's a double fence area, barbed wire on top. So it looks like a prison, if you will. And then we have guard towers at each corner of the facility and another guard tower in the middle of the facility. So we have five guard towers uh, uh, that, that, you know, uh, overlooking the, the facility. We have, I think it's like 21 uh, 
night, night, night vision cameras located different parts of the field so that you can really have a very good uh, view of everything that's going on in the field day or night. And then uh, that, that field is manned 24 hours a day when we are growing outdoors. And of course, it has a main gate, the entrance gate. And inside, we have a processing area. Uh, and, and then we have, uh, uh, we have drying barns to dry the plant material. Because if you, take the, if you harvest the plant material and let it just room temperature dry, it might develop mold or yeast or things of that nature. So we have a drying barn that we uh, get the plant material, put it in the drying barn. And so by the next day it's dry, we strip it and we process it directly. So there's no chance for mold uh, formation on the plant material that we, we manufacture. Inside the, the processing area, we do have a, a uh, what you call a de-seeder which is a machine that we developed that will, if you're growing the plant material initially from seeds, then you end up with plant material that have seeds because the seeds produce both male and female plants. And between the male and female plants, if the male plants the pollen, pollinate the female flowers, then you end up with seeds. Now we have shifted a little bit the, the, the process. So we are growing from uh, vegetative cuttings, which means that we pick a female plants that have the chemical profile that we're interested in producing. And then we make cuttings from those plants. And those cuttings, when you grow them, they only produce female plants and therefore there's no seeds. But nonetheless, the, the machine that we have in, in the processing area is called the de-seeder because it was designed originally to remove seeds but it's also designed to remove other big particles, pieces of the stem, stalks, things like that, it would remove. So the plant material that comes out at the end is nice and clean and is, is ready for the manufacture of cigarettes, if you will. <clears throat> Fascinating. And so you grow in dirt, right? Not hydroponics. Um, do you, you know, I, um, I, I toured a facility in Israel that does marijuana for medical purposes, and they show off that they have germ lines, you know, for a certain percentage THC or CBD, and it's not grown in dirt and it's sterile and sold in, in pharmacies. Is there anything like that in the United States? Is that what you do? Well, we have also, this is our outdoor growing facility that I just described to you, but we also do have an indoor uh, growing facility, but it's not big enough to, to, to do more than maybe five kilos or 10 kilos or something like that. It's just a small indoor growing facility that we have produced uh, material in that indoor growing room hydroponically, just like what you saw in Israel. We've also produced it in pots. You can have each plant is in, in a pot with the soil, sterile soil that we put in there. And then you produce, so it really, any way you, you produce it, Plant material is the plant material. And uh, the, the thing that determines the potency uh, of whatever it is you're growing is the genetics, not necessarily how you're growing it, whether it's in soil or in, in, in hydroponics. But we have, we have produced it in all these different ways. 
That's very interesting. Can you explain that more? The potency, so it comes from the seed? Because over the years, we know the marijuana plant has become much more potent. It's been genetically engineered. So how does that happen? Well, the, you have genetic selection. Even if you have, if you have from seeds, you know, we have taken seeds from just a single plant. So the seeds are coming from just one mother plant, but produces a lot of seeds, let's say a thousand seeds. You take those thousand seeds and you grow them, they are not going to be exactly the same. They don't produce exact same chemical composition. They differ depending on who the, the father of that seed was. Just like a, 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 gener a second generation. The, the cannabis plant is very highly hybridized plant, very easily hybridized. But the main genetics of the plant are determined by the chemovar, the what type of chemovar that you have. And we have three major chemovars. Tell us what a chemovar is. Chemovar is like, instead of saying variety, okay. the varieties, no, they're not, because the term variety is a very loose term that doesn't really define the chemical composition or the or the or the profile of the constituents of the plant within that variety if you will so we call them chemovars meaning chemical varieties or varieties that are defined not by the way or the shape of the plant or the way the plant looks but rather by the chemical profile or the chemical composition of the constituents within that particular plant so we have three major chemovars. One, which is the high TAC chemovar, and that usually has very low level of CBD. And then we have the high CBD chemovar, which is defined by having high levels of CBD and very low level of THC. And this is the chemovar that we normally refer to as hemp. But let me get back when I when I finish that description, I'll come back and recycle to the hemp and talk a little bit more about him. And then we have the third chemovar, which is the intermediate chemovar, which is a chemovar that actually has both reasonable levels of THC and CBD. It more or less like if you take the two, the, the THC chemovar and the CBD chemovar, and you marry those and you produce one chemovar, it's going to be the intermediate because it has the characteristics of both the THC chemovar and the CBD chemovar. That's the intermediate chemovar. Every plant material, every whatever the growers claim what they have, it falls within one of those three categories. And that's defined by the genetics of the plant. Now, within each and every one of those chemovars, you can do some genetic selection. Because let's say the plants that they, I said we take, you know, uh, a thousand seeds produced from one plant and you grow those and you look at the chemical composition for each one of those plants, they're going to be different, but might be one plant out of the thousand or two or three or whatever would really be very high producers of, let's say, THC. Then what you do, that's what I call genetic selection. You go to that plant that's producing really high levels of THC, and you propagate that plant. You make cuttings, you make uh, uh, vegetative uh, cuttings from that, and you have daughter plants that would be exactly like the mother plant. Or you can do uh, in vitro propagation, 
where you can take just small pieces of the leaf of the plant and you generate the colors and then shoots and then roots and you have several plants out of just a small section of the leaf of one plant that you that you that, that has this, the chemical profile that you're interested in so coming back to the CB, to the hemp <laughs> traditionally speaking industrial hemp is a type of plant that really has high t high cbd content and low tc content like we talked about this the high the cbd chemovar but the CBD was really probably no more than two or three percent, and the TC almost not there, or maybe 0.1 or less than 0.1 percent. That's the industrial hemp that was growing straight up with a, the, the top of the plant. There would be a flower head that produces a lot of seeds, and that industrial hemp was mainly grown and produced for seeds and fiber. In that main stalk that's going straight up like that, the fiber that goes on the outside of the, of the stem, that's the fiber that, that from which you manufacture the wood and the clothing and stuff like that. So, uh, but over the years, people have mod genetically modified that particular plant, the hemp plant, so for the production of higher levels of CBD. So those hemp plants or the CBD variety or chemovars are now, you can have up to maybe 10% or more, 15% uh, CBD. But of course, the higher the CBD content is, the higher the, the THC that, that's associated with it, not really high, but it, it would cross the definition, the current definition of hemp in the uh, uh, Agriculture Improvement Act of 2018 of the 0.3%. So in order to stay within the hemp definition, you're probably not going to have any more than maybe eight, six or 8% of CBD. But those that are producing hemp with you know, 12 or 15 or more percent CBD, they absolutely have more than 0.3% THC, I guarantee you. All right, so much um, that you're teaching us. And actually, that of course, that brings more questions. So um, you, you explained how the plant is genetically modified. I assume that you and your um, growth have also changed the marijuana plant so you can um, research more than what's what's out there in the public, right? So what, what potency are you growing? Well, we're growing, actually, we... Uh, let me just take you back just a few years because uh, traditionally what we were working with was plant material that represent the Mexican uh, variety of cannabis that has been uh, in use in the U.S. for many years. All the stuff was coming from Mexico into the U.S. and so on. So the original uh, variety that we produced was the Mexican variety which had maybe three, four percent of THC, but we can go maybe up to five or maybe probably no more than six percent or so. That's what was in the program. And the program had manufactured a lot of cigarettes, anywhere from placebo to one percent, two percent, three, four percent, were really not more than four for many years because that was what's available and what the people were requesting. 
People started requesting higher potency material, so we produced up to 8%, not necessarily by genetically modifying the plant material, by, but by selection of which part of the plant to harvest, which part, which, uh, uh, how the, the particle size of the plant, and excluding the large leaves, putting the small leaves. The reason for that uh, is the cannabis plant, if you have the cannabis plant like a Christmas tree like this, and you're going from the outside to the inside to the core of the, the buds of the cannabis plant, the potency increases as you go in, as you go towards the, the inside. So the outside leaves, it's the same genetic material, but the outside leaves might be one, one and a half percent. The middle leaves might be two, two and a half percent. The inner ones a little bit, maybe four or five percent. But then the inner bud of the core of the bud might be 10 or 15 or 20 percent. And when you harvest a whole plant and you put all this together, you end up with the average that I was talking about that may be four or six percent. So it really depends on what the interest is. You can, from the same genetic material, have a whole range of potencies depending on what is needed by the investigators. Interesting. So, now, and lately, there's been a lot of interest in in uh, in having you know material that is higher potency. So we we did acquire new genetics, not from what we have, but new genetics from outside that we were able to produce, and we can produce 20, 25, 27% THC, that, that's not a problem. We, we have that available. We will be putting some of that material in the drug supply program as soon as we get it uh, sterilized. Interesting. And so you mentioned hemp, um, and the, the definition of hemp is a legal definition, right? And in the United States, it's 0. 3% dry weight. In Europe, it's 0.2% dry weight. I never understood what that means. Like, what does dry weight mean in a clinical sense? Well, actually, there is also a debate right now as to whether the dry weight really uh, <clears throat> is a practical way of looking at material because people using cannabis, they don't use it as dry Cannabis. Right. I, that's why I didn't understand it. Right. It is as it is, you know, which is usually have maybe somewhere between 8 and 10% moisture. So the plant, when they say dry weight, meaning, you know, if you take all the moisture out of the plant, and that 0.3% by dry weight is what they're looking at. But is that a practical way of doing it? I would say no. You just need to analyze the way it is. The way the plant material is put on the market. If it has more than 0.3%, more 0.3% is, is not hemp. If it's less, it is hemp. But I, I, the 0.3%, the I think people have been really wondering where, but what, where this is coming from. No. I think I know because I have been around for many years and I know the progression of this. And I know that the actual industrial hemp that I mentioned to you earlier on, the real hemp, that's grown in Canada now for production of seeds and all of this, and grow in Europe for many, many years, uh, really the the, the THC content is probably no more than 0.1 or 0.2%. So when they looked at, I, I, that, that's my assumption, I don't know for sure because I was not part of that decision, 
the 0.3% is to give a room, a little bit of room for the growers in case if it goes up a little bit and that's uh, they pick the 0.3%. But there's no scientific reason why 0.3 versus 0.2 versus, no. So uh, what's interesting now, so what does that mean to the consumer? Number one, um, if I go to a restaurant and they sell hemp seeds, am I eating CBD or could there be THC? In, in my hemp salad? Hemp seeds or hemp, what, what product? Hemp seeds? Yeah, so like you'll go to a restaurant and they'll or buy, get an acai bowl and they'll ask you, you know, do you want some hemp seeds in your salad or your, your bowl? Yeah. What yeah. am I eating? The hemp, the seeds in general, whether it's hemp or even cannabis, regular marijuana seeds, they don't really have that much THC in them anyway. The THC or the CBD of course, you know, hemp seeds are going to have a lot more CBD than they have THC. Marijuana seeds are going to have a lot more THC than they have CBD. The reason for that is, is not that the seeds themselves actually have any cannabinoids. They have the cannabinoids, and I did that study I published years ago. They have the cannabinoids only on the surface of the seed as a result of the physical contact between the seeds and the plant material during processing. You know, the, 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 the cannabinoids exist in the, uh, in the resin of the plant, which is in the glandular trichomes of the plant. And when you're processing, tumbling the seeds along with the plant material, there is physical contact between the seed and the plant material. Some of the resin that's in the plant materials gets stuck on the seeds. And so the seeds will have some, not because they have it themselves, but okay. as outside contamination. So I probably wouldn't fail my federal drug test if I ate I a, a salad with some hemp seeds in it. I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> it's good to know. And the other thing about hemp is all these Delta 8, Delta 10 products that are considered hemp by law but it's causing, you know, psychosis. They haven't, it's amazing, they haven't been even tested in rats, and yet we're, we're, we're giving these chemicals to people and our children. I think, I think the Congress, in its wisdom, generated a big problem to the drug industry and, and to the hemp industry, but the hemp industry is, is taking advantage of that loophole in there and uh, because of the making the definition of him, the definition of him, anything in the plant, the cannabis plant material with less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC. So if you have a cannabinoid that exists in him, let's say Delta 8, and you, you have this Delta 8 as a pure chemical, and it has less than 0.3% delta-9 THC, then it's hemp by that definition. Right. But really, this is not true because, first of all, delta-8 does not exist in the plant material to any extent that would make it economically feasible to isolate from hemp. First of all, delta-8 is only a, it's an artifact, is a side product, of Delta-9. Delta-9, when you heat it or you expose it to harsh conditions, 
some of that gets converted to delta-8. If you look at any product that has delta-9, any plant material, the, the amount of delta-8 relative to delta-9 is probably less than 0.1%. Okay? So less than 0.1%, let's say 0.1%. 0.1%, so you look at the delta-9, if you have 10% delta-9, then maybe you have 0.01% delta-8. But they've really screwed up the definition because, again, it's not 0.3% dry weight because when they're selling delta-8 and delta-10, it's not coming from a plant. It's made in a lab. Exactly. And, but they don't say it's made in the lab. They say it's coming from hemp. Right. But, but understanding from you and, and, and DEA is if you're selling delta-8, it's not from a plant. Exactly. Okay. I mean, I can guarantee you, but uh, but they say, well, but Delta-8 is in hemp, so I got it from hemp. But it didn't come from, what's hemp? I is know. It? Okay. <laughs> I 100% mean, you know, I mean, I, I agree with you, and okay. I 100% agree with the DA on that, but because the law says, making the definition, they're just following the law. And yeah. I think one company was sued or something like that, and there's a uh, there's a court uh, decision on this, and the judge in that case ruled to the side of the manufacturer, saying, "Well, this is a problem that was created or caused by Congress, and only Congress can fix it. As far as the law goes, it's hemp." And DEA also said, "We're not fixing this, Congress. You need to fix this." Exactly. Yeah, you made the problem, so you fix the problem. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. let me ask you. I'm sure people are wondering. You're probably you know walking around. You know the 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 purest. You talked about several times. How about you? Very careful to make sure there's no fungus or contaminants, and it takes a while. It's not so easy. So you're at the purest uh, marijuana uh, farm, and have uh, you used or your staff used, or is that forbidden to to try these products? No, we can't. We can't use those products. As a matter of fact, we can't acquire those products, even acquire them because we are DA registered, and all the facilities, all the companies, all the dispensaries that are selling all these products yeah. are not registered with the DA, and we, as DA registrants, we cannot acquire any controlled substances from other. Uh, institutions or other facilities that are not registered with the DA, so we're not allowed to. So I I, I, I wanted to do this for years. And finally, and you <laughs> mentioned the NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. Yeah. I got in touch with those folks and I offered them the opportunity to collaborate, to do some work, to look at what's, what's out there on the market. If you give me the samples, because I can acquire it from law enforcement or NMI, with no uh, no problem, but I can't get it directly myself. So they actually gave me about 300 different products, different things, some of them plant materials, some gummies, some, some uh, suckers, some uh, brownies. Uh, uh, they must have had fun going on a shopping spree, huh? 
Well, they 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 got those, you know, they got the agents to 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 collect those materials and send them to me, and I did the analysis. Yeah. And I am having actually a presentation at the uh, at the International Cannabinoids Research Society in Toronto, in uh, on May on uh, June twenty fourth to twenty ninth, on those products, the analysis of those products, and we are making a manuscript right now for the analysis of the flowers that we acquire from dispensaries, looking at the labeling, what the labels show on those products versus what we find analytically speaking. Well, that's so going to be fascinating. They match very nicely between the, the claimed value and what we got, but a lot of products are really fall way out of the acceptable range of uh, what what they're claiming it to be. Interesting. Um so that brings us to Alyssa's question. Alyssa um, has a question for our podcast. She's asking, what is the difference between cannabis for research, what you do and grow and explain so much, and cannabis from the dispensaries? So that's kind of what you're describing. What, how is it grown differently? And what are, are the contaminants, purity, potency? Um, well, how is it how is different? Yeah, I, I don't know what the dispensaries do with the plant material that they put in their in, in their shops, if you will. You don't but know I, the the. Do they use different techniques in growing and drying and all? Technique in growing. I mean, it's it, it really the growing the cannabis plant is a very simple process. It's really not something complicated. It's just people try to make the product look enticing. You know how they have the buds and they trim very nicely and all of that. But for us, we are we are uh, charged with the responsibility of making standardized material to be used in research. As such, we you know the material that we produce goes into the manufacture of marijuana cigarettes that are put in the drug supply program to be used by researchers. Those cigarettes to part- to have a, a, a let's say a clinical trial. That is a placebo-controlled, double-blind study, and you're looking at different levels of cannabinoids in plant material to see what the effect is and, and, and see the difference between the changes in the potency. You've got to make the cigarettes of the same size, same shape, same weight, and when the, in the subjects consuming those cigarettes they have to consume the whole cigarette so that there is no, the only difference will be the content of the cigarette, not how much you smoke. So for example, if you have, if you have a, a two and a half percent cigarette and you smoke the whole cigarette versus a 5% cigarette and you smoke half a cigarette or a 10% cigarette and you smoke a fourth, you're really not getting two and a half, five and 10. You're getting only two and a half. All of them are two and a half. The equivalent of two and a half. So, to have the, those studies standardized, the subjects have to consume the whole entire cigarette. In 2005, 2006, I think it was around that time frame, Dr. Donald Abram from University of California, San Francisco, said, Mahmoud, I want to do a study. I want to compare 2% to 4% to 8% to placebo. No problem. I had the placebo, I had the 2%, I had the 4%, but I didn't have the 8% because the 8%, the, the, the THC level 
the cannabinoids level is so high that the plant material becomes sticky. And these, are, these cigarettes are manufactured using a high-speed cigarette manufacturing machine. And that resin and that 8% makes the machine, it, it, it sticks and gums the machine, it, it doesn't work. So we had to hand roll the 8% cigarettes, but we did it. I gave him zero, two, four, and eight. He used that in the study and not too long after he got started, he called me and said, the most experienced subjects that I have could not tolerate, could not finish the 8% cigarette. So can we make the highest to be six? <laughs> so we made the highest to be six. So we made a, a big batch of the six and we sent it to him and he did the study, everything's okay. It was a double blind, so the subject didn't know what the potency was and the investigator himself didn't know what the, what the, what the potencies were, but they had a questionnaire at the end with the different subjects that participated in this crossover study. And so most of the subjects actually picked the 4% as the, the best that did really the good job for them. Some picked the 6%, some picked 2%, and some picked placebo. I, I think so, the most important part of the study that you just mentioned is that people couldn't tolerate the 8% and the study had to be changed. Right. To me, that's the most important you know, finding. And that's it's a very important finding. And that, and that's you know, begs the point of why you need 20% or, or 25% or, or 15% if you can't finish. But the high potency material is not used in that setting. It's used in where the people just roll their own cigarettes and they take one puff or two, they self-titrate and stop. But that's not, that's not a standardized research. Right. It, it always, you know... It got me when people are doing, oh, we did this study using your cigarettes. And I think, what does that have to do with reality, right? Because yeah. you're getting this pure, perfect, you know, cigarette with a dose, eh, not more than 8% because people couldn't tolerate it. But yet when they go to the dispensary, they're getting 25%. So what does that have to do with, you know, um, with reality? Well, uh, it has a lot to do actually with the reality because what you are doing is the the 25% that the people get from the dispensary, they, they take a small amount of that and they smoke it. They get a certain dose of THC. Let's say 25% and they do uh, they, they do a, a, a 200 milligram cigarette. Okay, that's equivalent to 5% of one gram cigarette. Yeah, five percent of the nida cigarette, so it would be equivalent to smoking one nida cigarette at five percent. Or if they only use a hundred milligram in making that cigarette of the twenty-five percent, then it's equivalent to two and a half percent cigarette. So it, the, the what you really need to be looking at, which is the the public is not able to to understand, is it's not the potency of the plant material that matters. It's the dose of the drug, which is THC, is what matters. Whether that dose is, is like taking, uh, taking uh, uh, a, uh, let's say, 100 milligram of codeine. 
and putting that just within by itself in 100 milligram tablet is gonna be a really tiny, very tablet. Or you put the excipients and all of this with it and to make it reasonable size tablet, you put it in a 200 milligram tablet, it'll be twice as much. Or you put in a half a gram tablet, it'll be five times as much. But the dose of codeine is the same, whether it's in the half a gram tablet or 200 milligram tablet or 100 milligram tablet, the codeine dose is the same. The drug dose is the same. So this is the same thing here, but it's not easy for people to comprehend because they, they can't really make those calculations and, and understand that. But, but the other thing is, and you went into explaining, is how much trouble you go through to make sure there's no fungus or contaminants or other toxins, right? I mean, when we, UC Davis did a study of 20 legal dispensaries, they found 100% of them had E. coli, fungus, aspergillus. They have toxins, carcinogens. Are your plants different than what, what's well, out there? Our plant material, first of all, our plant material is, is different because we, we grew under very uh, much controlled conditions, number one. And number two is once we finish the final product before we release it, it goes to quality control. Before we release it, we look for, uh, we, we uh, analyze it, look, look for microbial you know, content, we look at fungal yeast, we look at heavy metals, we look at aflatoxins, you know, all, the, all these things we analyze, make sure that it's clean. Now, we have uh, since maybe, maybe five, six, seven years, something like that, the FDA now started requesting that plant material produced for research in humans needs to be sterilized, needs to be irradiated. So we started an irradiation program years ago so that all the products that we harvest and collect are irradiated and then they're analyzed after irradiation to show that they are devoid of any contaminants. So is there any other legal grows in the United States, ultra health uh, that has like, you know, a uh, 9 million square foot facility in, in New Mexico. Do they go through that sterilization, you know? I don't think they do. I don't think Does so. Does anybody do that? No, no, they, they, they don't do that for sure. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> there are some growers now that have been approved by the DA to, to produce plant material for research. But, uh, but they haven't really started actually doing that for anybody. The, and those same people, I think there's seven or eight growers that applied for a manufacturing registration with the DA, and they actually bid, some of them might have, I don't know how many, might have bid on the current contract that we just acquired, just received. Mm -hmm. They didn't win. I don't know why, because they were, the, I think NIDA was looking for multiple growers, multiple contracts, but I think there's only one, which is the one that we received. So that means that those other growers didn't really qualify for one reason or the other. I don't know why. So again, you've been the only game in town for many years and people complained like, well, there's only one place in Mississippi where you could do the research. And and uh, I think DA, NIDA came together and put it out for bid, had lots of contracts. It's like, okay, we'll take more people, but they couldn't probably um, uphold to the regulations and standards that, that you have. Right, and, and also I think most of those growers that have applied for that registration, they really were under or misunderstanding 
uh, what the limitations are once they get a DA registration. They probably thought they can get the registration, get the contract, and then continue to do the side things that they were doing, put stuff in dispensaries and selling it to here and there. You couldn't do that when you have a DA registration. Yeah. Absolutely not. So uh, I, I think it's uh, it's not it's not an easy thing. Right. They so thought they, maybe it'd be profitable. It's, it's not yeah, always they, profitable. <laughs> yeah. Some of them might have when they... Uh, uh, they got the actual request for proposal and the specifics of what they have to go through and so on. Maybe they that scared them enough not to apply and not to apply for the contract anyway, but some of them might have already applied, but of course their proposal is not was not technically sound enough to be selected as one of the uh, of the contractors because NIDA was actually looking for multiple contractors for that contract multiple facilities but but i think i'm not 100 percent sure but i think we're the only one that received the contract i think i heard there was one other place but i don't know where it was yeah. but so tell us about the state of weed and you know fascinating project you did with the national marijuana initiative they went around the country buying brownies and cookies and dabs that you got and 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 tested but so tell us a little bit about how marijuana has evolved in in your in your lifetime both in the the plant we talked about itself that has evolved and um, genetically selected to have more higher potency thc but also the various um products that that you are testing well, I, I think the, the 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 major development that happened over the last few years, first of all, the, the fact that the people have now opted to go for a real high potency material. And we have been analyzing uh, confiscated samples over the years, uh, you know, getting and that's a program that Mike Kala was very much interested in. And I, I use your graph. You've, you've, I've seen your graph, and I use it in my in my presentations, where it shows um, marijuana that's been seized by law enforcement, and it shows how the potency has gone up from like three percent to seventeen percent, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the average now is about sixteen percent. That goes from the early eighties was maybe two or three percent, and now it's sixteen percent. Right, but that's that's what's seized, right? But now law enforcement isn't even bothering to seize marijuana. Well, the reason is because of the medical marijuana laws that were enacted by the different states and the Department of Justice instructed DA hands off of the states that have medical marijuana. In other words, you can't go to a grower that's doing medical marijuana and seize their material. You can't do that. So... DA got really discouraged from making seizures. Just to give you a, an idea, mm -hmm. a few years ago, before all that medical marijuana law started really cropping up from one state to another, we used to get three, 4,000 seizures a year for analysis. Now, we don't, we don't get maybe 600 a year. So when you when I look at your graph and you say okay now it's seventeen percent, is that really accurate or the dispensaries have twenty five percent? It's just that you're not seeing that. Well, remember remember the number that you are mentioning. This is an average number. That means we have samples within that average mm -hmm. that are way below that and have samples that 
way above that. So right. that's average. Average 17% or 16% is very high THC content on the overall. And we also looked at, I don't know whether they showed that uh, graph that I had on my, one of my papers or in the, in, the, in the PM report, the quarterly reports, but you look at the reason why the THC content has increased like this is because we used to get confiscated marijuana as just marijuana, just the plant material coming in, you know, some part of the plant, tops of the plants with leaves, stems, everything. Now we look at most of the seizures are just little bitty tiny buds that are just the inner core of the plant. So, and I remember I mentioned to you earlier that the THC content in the plant material, as mm -hmm. you get closer to the end, to the, to the inner core of the bud, the higher the THC content is. And so the growers are trimming, taking the bud and trimming, removing all the big leaves and everything and only taking that inner bud. That's why the THC content is so high. So the reason for the increase in the THC content, not only because they have been looking at better genetic material, but also uh, the, 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 the product, the harvesting technique and the processing technique that focuses on the high THC content. And then tell us about these brownies and shatters and dabs and oils and waxes. Are you looking into that at all? We're looking into that, just looking at the, at the content of those, the THC or CBD content, and how, how does it correlate the actual analytical value correlate with what the manufacturer claim the product to have in it. That's the only thing that we're doing right now, but we're not doing any uh, investigation into how clean the material is or how active it is or how inactive it is or any pharmacology or anything like that. We're just looking at the, at the, the, the content. The, the accuracy. The, the, the accuracy of the labeling. So there were, there were several studies, I'm sure you've seen that, by JAMA that looked at accuracy and it's, I think, the truth in advertisement um, for CBD products that they bought and then some of THC and they found poor accuracy in, in the labeling. Yes, I think, I, I think I'm on one of those publications. We did some of that work with the Johns Hopkins University and I did actually one myself here. And, and so there, there's... As a matter of fact, in the study that I did myself here, some of the products that had claimed certain amount of THC or CBD, when I did the analysis, I didn't find any CBD or THC, but I found a synthetic cannabinoid. Synthetic cannabinoid. Like spice and K2? Exactly. Oh, wow, that's very scary. Just, it's crazy. It's crazy what they have out there. That's very scary, yeah, because we can't find it. We can't test for that, and it, you know, I've seen patients with seizures, terrible effects from. Um... Yeah, we can we can test for all of that. Actually, with the way that I I I, I discovered that I was just looking for the the THC and CBD, I didn't see any of those. But then I saw in the chromatogram in my analytical data, I saw something that's really peculiar that I haven't seen before. So it got my curiosity, and I took that and continued to do some other analytical work and found out that this was actually a synthetic cannabinoid. And I identified that and I published in my... Was that from a legal dispensary or an illegal dispensary? 
because the public is going to stores thinking that it's safe, right? They're going to these dispensaries um, with some type of assurance that government is regulating it. People don't understand that they're not, the government's not doing a good job. They think it's like buying alcohol or cigarettes. I mean, if somebody, if some shop is settling synthetic cannabinoids, it's against the law and endangering the public. People should know. Right, right. Well, I, I think uh, the uh, the government, when you talk about the government, is probably the state government. And some states have regulations for the dispensaries and what they can do and what testing they have to do and so on. And some don't. And even the ones that do, maybe in, in the beginning of the medical marijuana era, there was no special regulation by the states for those products. So and that might be, have been one that was during that time frame. Interesting. But even even with that, I mean the you know the state is not going to regulate. It's not going to say you know don't put uh, you know K two in there because it's not supposed to. <laughs> they would tell you you need to do this. You need to have the levels of THC and CBD and this and that. But anybody that you know, wants to to entice the public to buy the material, and they spike it with something that will give a, a a strong feeling. You know, they have material that is maybe one percent or even hemp or something, and they add the, this the, uh, synthetic cannabinoid to it, and somebody uses it, and they get really a big hit, and they they like it. They have to go back and buy it again, and so it, it's it's all commercial. It's well, not, uh, what about, but anyway, then the, the harms, you know, I think we still have a duty to protect. They don't think about that. They don't think, <laughs> yeah. they really don't think about that. They don't care. When people talk about plants and, you know, there's only one place in Mississippi that you can grow the marijuana and, and do research, they always say, we don't have enough research. Um, you're a researcher, so maybe you agree, but what do you think? Do we not have enough research? Do we need more research? We always need more research. But... Let, me, let me tell you. Let me tell you what I did lately in preparation for the last submission of the contract. And, and because I, at that time, and having so many different uh, flowers, products, cannabis flower products from different states, okay? Yeah. I got all these things and I did analysis. All the chemical profile for those products that came from Oregon, uh, you know, different states, okay? And did the chemical profile of those. And then the material that I have, and did the chemical profile of those. And then the material from confiscated cannabis plant material coming from different states, and did the chemical profile of that. Well, guess what? All of them look very, very similar. There's not really that big a difference between the dispensary materials from the confiscated material, from the material that I produce. So people call their products different names, but they're all high THC chemovars, the ones that we described in the beginning. They all belong to the same family of chemovars. That's on the THC side. And on the CBD side, of course, there's not that much interest in there because people are not smoking the CBD side. They might be taking it for medical purposes, for pain or anxiety or something like that. But it's not it's not just for the uh, pleasure. 
of, of smoke. But let me give you one other piece of information that is not very commonly known. I looked at the THC content of the, of the confiscated materials, which is materials that everybody is using on the streets from different places, all the average, that curve that he was talking about. And look at the, uh, the rate of, and this is coming from the White House, from ONDCP, the, the rate of uh, NIDA, actually NIDA and the director, Dr. Wurkoff, looked at the rate of emergency room admission as a result of cannabis use or precipitated by cannabis use and they end up in the emergency room. The two curves look so parallel. That's my home. That's the emergency department. Yeah, exactly. So that's number one. Number two is I looked at the, at the confiscated materials looked at the THC content, and looked at the CBD content in the same plant material. Here is the THC, here is the CBD, here is the THC, here is the CBD, and so on. And find out that the THC has been climbing up over the years, while the CBD content is pretty much about the same. Right. That's your graph that you show, yeah. That tells me that the growers are opting for the high THC content, and the users... And, and the, of course, the growers are trying to satisfy a market and the demand. So the demand is for the high THC variety, not for the high CBD variety. Right. Well, it's also it's the demand, but it's also um, the higher the content, the more the addiction, the more customers you have. Just like nicotine, right? They right. Th When they grew the tobacco, they wanted to be more t nicotine, so it'd be more addicting, so they could have more business. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. So uh, fascinating information. What I mean, you've you've contributed, you know, these you sell out cigarettes um, to many different uh, places around the United States. What what do they cost? Oh, I don't really know. Honestly, I don't know. But I think you know, if I, I I'm going to give you a figure. Yeah. But don't hold me to it because really this is something I don't see. Okay. First of all, for investigators that have a grant or a uh, an approved study, it doesn't cost him anything. It doesn't cost the, the investigators or the subjects anything. Zero. It's all borne by NIDA. NIDA. So NIDA buys from you. But uh, some few years ago, NIDA opened the program, opened the supply to investigators who do not have approval by NIDA or by whatever, NIH but they still want to do a study. And they have a protocol that's approved, let's say, by the FDA. And they need material for that. Well, neither can't give material free of charge for a study that is not approved or, uh, or, or, or uh, funded by NIDA or NIH. So they had a price on it. I think it was like maybe $8 a cigarette or something like that. That's give or take. I'm not sure. Uh, so how many, six or eight dollars? Not too much. Probably cheaper than a dispensary. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know okay. the dispensary, and I'm not sure. But that's the price they put on it. I think it's somewhere between six and eight dollars in that range. But, uh, Interesting. So, Dr. Osoli, yeah. what a what a fascinating! I got to have like a you know private tutorial on on marijuana growth from you, and I want you reflecting on your amazing career. Um, in this type of research, what is your, 
I mean, what's your message to youth about marijuana, what, to, to um, your perspective on legalizations, what's happening in the United States over time? What, what do you, what's your perspective? Well, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, people think that I'm totally against marijuana use. I am totally against marijuana use as a recreational drug, but I do have a lot of respect and admiration for that plant just from the work that I did with it. I started working on cannabis in 1976. That's coming up to almost, you know, 50 years here. And I have not stopped to be amazed by the new findings that we find in that plant. You know, we have, over the last few years, we have, in my lab, we have isolated 43 new cannabinoids out of the 50 that was that were isolated worldwide. So I am really fascinated by the chemistry of the plant and the activity of the plant. Of course, the discovery of the CB1 and CB2 receptor receptors and their distribution in the human body uh, you know, again, it's, it's a very fascinating uh, part and showing that or, or re-enforcing re, uh, what I have read years ago and kind of sort of really didn't believe it when, you know, cannabis was used over the years for so many indications that, you know, we, we can't use the same drug for for uh, diarrhea and constipation and for this and for that. I mean, everything. And I see now why this was actually true because the, 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 the receptors are distributed so many parts of the body and the THC content and the effect of the THC is biphasic. At a certain dose, it will cause one effect. And if you increase the dose more, it gives the opposite effect. So you can right. have diarrhea and you can have constipation treated by the same thing. Right. So, or you can have it help nausea, but then if you take so much, it causes you the worst nausea and pain you ever had. Or, or most, it, most of the side effects of the high TC uh, content products is hyperemesis. Mm -hmm. Hyperemesis. That's the opposite of, you know, controlling vomiting, nausea and vomiting. So... It is it's a fascinating plant. I have a lot of respect for it. I have a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, optimism for not the, using the plant in the traditional way of smoking and, and getting high and all of that stuff, but of the development of medications out of that plant or cannabis-based medicines that would really have a tremendous impact on human health. Right. And really, anything that goes through the FDA process and scrutiny to be a medicine, you know, of course, as a doctor, I would... Right, but I, I have, I, I just developed two, uh, actually now three, but two that are in the works right now. Two products that I, the one out of the TSC, the TSC is, is, is obviously the, the major component and the one that has been talked about a lot and, and the one that has a lot more pharmacological activities that can be translated into a medicine and, you know, prepared a prodrug out of the THC. That the THC has been for years, people trying to use it for glaucoma, 
but we really never got it to, to, to be effective in a topical application. Yes, if you smoke the drug, then you may have lower your intraocular pressure, but that's, uh, that, that's as a, you know, coupled with the side effects of them getting high and all of this, which- What I told the people is if you have glaucoma, would you rather smoke for a perfect level all the time so your pressure is down or would you rather take eye drops if you're going to go blind? <laughs> no, I don't. So, so I developed that thing, and now it's in phase two, phase one, phase two clinical trial for that particular product that actually get absorbed from the from the eye drops and lower the intraocular pressure. Does a great job without having any systemic effects, any side effects. Right. So, That's very different than smoking pot for your glaucoma. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, but unfortunately, people make that hear that saying oh this is good for glaucoma and people say oh i'm smoking for my glaucoma or i'm smoking for my seizures or i'm and but that's not the real medicine but uh yes there, there's yeah and, and, the, and the thing about it is you know while cannabis people want to use it but want to smoke it i i kind of really find it hard to believe that if they would ever approve a smoke uh you know cannabis for any indication it's just you know, the dose is not easy to adjust. Uh, uh, you know, the, all the side effects are associated with that. It's just too much, too much trouble that anybody will actually, any pharmaceutical company will spend the money to develop cannabis as a medicine in the tradition. But cannabinoids out of the cannabis plant, and sure. there's so many of them there that really have some good pharmacological activity, could be developed as medicines with no issue. That is great. I want to say a big thank you to Alyssa for your question and framing this amazing um, discussion with Dr. El Soli. And Dr. El Soli, thank you. Thank you for this amazing, I love my job as a podcast host. I get a private tutorial session um, that I'm sharing with all my listeners. Uh, again, I've been waiting a long time to meet you. I'm so excited. If you ever need an, an ER doctor to give a perspective on what you're seeing in the plants, I'm happy to, to help you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And good luck with your podcast. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.